This is the Tenable Research Update, a series where we hear about some of the work from Tenable Research directly from our researchers. Today we have Ryan Hoy, the Research Engineering Manager, or a Research Engineering Manager, and Satnam Narang, Senior Security Response Manager with the Security Response Team. I'm Claire, your host. So to kick things off, we will chat with Satnam about some of the notable vulnerabilities and patch Tuesdays that we have run into so far in February. So first, uh, just earlier today, really, we published um, an alert about CVE 2020-0618. So some proof of concept from patch Tuesday. Satnam, tell me about that. Yeah, so uh, actually, we're going to talk about it a little later. There was a vulnerability patched in this month's patch Tuesday, which was CVE 2020-0618. It's an improper input validation flaw in Microsoft SQL Server reporting services. So it's a tool that's used to generate reports. It's part of a suite of tools that Microsoft offers that include SQL Server analysis services and SQL Server integration services. So a researcher by the name of Sarush Dalili, I hope I'm getting his name right. Um, he's a principal security consultant at MDSEC. He discovered the flaw and reported it to Microsoft. And he published a blog on the 14th of February, which included technical analysis. And that included a proof of concept, which he was able to use to target a uh, page on a SharePoint server that was on premise. And through his proof of concept, he was able to obtain a shell on a vulnerable server. So is SSRS a common thing? This is the first time I'm ever hearing of it. Um, do you know what kind of use cases it has? Yeah, I mean, it's not as common. Um, it's something that you would have to install. I know that there's probably some uh, software that bundles it together with, um, you know, as part of its suite. But yeah, it's not a common uh, tool that's out there. I know that, you know, SQL Server is widely used, but yeah, it's definitely not common. But I did want to mention that uh, Dali actually, Dalili, excuse me, uh, did a Google search, um, basically kind of creating like a Google dork, which is like a special query. Can you, you can use to identify potentially vulnerable assets out there on the internet. And he was able to find about close to 9,000 um, systems out there using this. And a lot of them were government related. Though, even though he saw a bunch of these um, systems out there, it's hard to know whether or not they're vulnerable. Yeah. And if the researcher is looking for them, that means the attackers are going to look for them too. So definitely want to prioritize anything with an active proof of concept out there. Yeah, and actually it's funny too, this morning I saw that a researcher basically took the details that Delilly provided and he used it to get a $10,000 bounty reward from Tesla because they had a vulnerable subdomain out there. So nice. definitely people out there poking around now with this information. Yeah, I mean, I hope I hope he, he kicks some of that back to Delilly. That would be the, the polite thing to do. <laughs> right. Um, interesting. So the next one we have is an exploited in the wild for theme grill demo importer vulnerability for a WordPress plugin. Yeah, so um, this uh, WordPress plugin actually had a decent amount of installations. There are about 200,000 installations for the theme grill demo importer. Uh, researchers at WebRx actually disclosed the vulnerability on February 15th in a blog post. Uh, they had worked with the uh, individuals behind the uh, the plugin and basically worked with them to get a patch out. And um, essentially, what happens here is the vulnerability allows an unauthenticated remote remote attacker to execute administrator functions such as reverting the site settings back to default or wiping the database altogether. Uh, basically, presenting like a hello world 
page on a, on a site that has this plugin installed. The thing that always, I guess, maybe not amuses, interests, fascinates me with these WordPress plugin vulnerabilities is I'm always like, that sounds like a very niche thing. And then it's, you know, 600,000, 200,000 websites use it, um, I guess, because WordPress is pretty ubiquitous. Um, but that always just kind of blows my mind is, you know, you look at the titles and it's got, you know, this very long name of a plugin and then it's like, okay, but like everybody uses it. Yeah, because WordPress is so widely used, there are so many plugins out there, which means there's such a large attack surface for vulnerabilities in these plugins. So that's why you have companies like WebRx and WordFence who do a lot of research in this space to identify vulnerabilities in these plugins. I did want to mention uh, one interesting fact about the plugin was, even though it had 200,000 installs on February 15th, about a day later, that number dropped to about 100,000 because a lot of people were deactivating the plugin because... You know, they were worried about being targeted by it. So, mm -hmm. and I think that there were some reports that even though um, the developers of the plugin released a fix for it, it wasn't a complete fix because there were some folks reporting that their sites were still getting uh, taken over. So yeah. I think they released 1.63 um, yesterday, which should finally address this vulnerability. Yeah, I do wonder if some of those deactivations were people realizing they had the plugin installed that they weren't using and we're just like oh well let's do some some spring cleaning some late winter cleaning um which is never a bad idea um all right and then now we can we can move on and talk about patch tuesday not quite yeah. as dramatic as last month but but they're still trying to kind of keep things rolling keep things spicy for us yeah i mean it's death taxes and patch tuesday right that's the thing you can expect <laughs> pretty much um, so just kind of looking at this month's patch Tuesday, there were about 99 CVEs patched along with 12 of those being critical and just kind of looking at, you know, historical record for the last several months, the largest patch Tuesday in recent months was uh, back in August of 2019. There were 95 CVEs patched with about 29 critical, which is a pretty huge release. Um, they kind of closed out the year on a, on a, you know, calmer note. They only patched 36 CVEs in December. And then as you mentioned last month was crazy because of the um, curveball or NSA bug that we were referring to in the last month's call. But yeah, this one was a, was a doozy of a, of a release as well. Um, Microsoft actually released a fix for a vulnerability CV 2020-0674, which is a scripting engine memory corruption vulnerability in Internet Explorer. Uh, there were reports last month that it was being exploited in the wild. Is that um, the one that this is the third time they've tried to fix it or is that a different one? Yeah, good good catch on that one. Yeah, so apparently this vulnerability has existed for quite a long time and Microsoft has released several patches for it. So initially they uh, reported it back in September of 2019. It was identified as CV 2019-1367. Um, that one was being exploited in the wild. They released an out-of-band fix for it. And yet a couple months later in November, they released CV 2019-1429 which is another fix for this vulnerability. That one was part of Patch Tuesday. It wasn't out of band. So I think one of the interesting trends here is that they initially patched it out of band, but they've since patched it as part of Patch Tuesday, even though it's been exploited in the wild essentially since September. Hmm. I wonder what the, the strategy is behind that. It might just be, this is when we will have the patch ready. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It'd be interesting to, to find out what the thought process is behind whether or not they would patch it out of band or not. Yeah, 
I would love to see more on that um, from some of the vendors who do these kind of bulk updates. Um, if anyone are, of you are listening, let us know. <laughs> um, all yeah. right, so let's see. We've got a little time still to talk about the first vulnerability we talked about this month, which was CDPone. Yeah, so CDPone is a vulnerability that was disclosed and discovered by researchers at Armist Security. Uh, they reported this back on February 5th, and as part of their reporting, Cisco provided security advisories for five vulnerabilities in what's called the Cisco Discovery Protocol, or CDP. Uh, technically, Cisco doesn't call it CDP. I think we just internally call it CDP, and I think even the researchers are like, well, we're going to call it CDPone because it's a cool name. So, um, essentially, the vulnerability exists in the protocol, which is unique to Cisco because they use it to discover and communicate between Cisco devices. Uh, the flaw would allow an unauthenticated adjacent attacker to exploit the flaw, um, which would allow them to gain remote code execution or create a denial of service condition. Um, Cisco says that because CDP or Cisco Discovery Protocol is a layer two protocol, uh, an attacker would need to be in the same broadcast domain as the affected device in order to exploit it, which sort of mitigates some of the impact. Um, Armist says that about there's like tens of millions of devices affected by this, which include Cisco NXOS switches, uh, Cisco iOS XR routers, uh, Cisco NCS systems, IP cameras, FirePower firewalls, and IP phones, certain configurations of IP phones and uh, IP cameras. Um, in order to exploit it, CDP actually needs to be enabled. And interestingly enough, it is enabled by default in certain devices using NXOS or FXOS. Yeah, I looked into the protocol a little bit when we were when we were writing up the, or when you guys were writing up the blog post. <clears throat> and it's an interesting from a conceptual because I don't have the technical chops to really break down the actual protocol, but reading about why they have it put together and how it works was actually really interesting. So um, if you do go check out that blog post, you can kind of link through to some of the, this, the Cisco documentation and see a little bit on how that protocol works. And I found it kind of fascinating. All right, so thank you, Satnam. We are now going to turn over to our guest, Ryan, this month. So Ryan, it is your first time joining us. So please give us a quick little introduction of yourself and your team. Sure, Claire. Uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, my team is the Vulnerability Intelligence Feeds team. And basically what we do is we collect data about vulnerabilities and then feed that into the uh, plugin automation framework. So that's basically how we uh, automate the generation of Nasl or Nessus plugins. So we go out and write tailored web scrapers to collect data from vendors or other sources and feed that into this database that can then create uh, new plugins for our feeds. Cool, so it's kind of like the, the little gnomes behind the scenes that make the plugins. Uh, exactly, exist. yeah. And we don't, we don't create all of them for sure. We provide a lot of data uh, for them, but we do have the, a different team that writes them manually. We just do yeah. the automatic generation. Okay, what are some of the sources that feed the plugin automation framework? Um, so lots of vendor sites. Uh, just did a count, we've got 89 uh, sites that we collect from right now. And then we generate about 25 uh, different sets of plugins from those. Uh, this could be anything from like, say the Red Hat Oval Stream to NVD, uh, any other vendor sites. Uh, 
just basically we look at the, the same advisories that our vulnerability detection folks would look at to write the plugin. Cool. And what are some of the projects your team is working on lately? Um, so I guess one of the big wins that we had recently uh, in December, we fully automated a, a feed for Photon OS. Um, so we're now able to ingest that, that uh, vulnerability information, uh, normalize it into a usable format uh, that can be read by a machine, uh, generate the nasal and test data for it, uh, test it on live systems, and then export those feeds or those plugins into the feed. So was Photon OS spe specifically tricky source to automate or was this just kind of a, a high priority for the team? Actually, it ended up not being that tricky. Uh, the nice thing about Photon OS is it uses a, a pretty regular format. They don't change it from month to month. Occasionally that happens with uh, other vendors, um, but you know, Photon was you know, pretty easy to bring down and, and get processed. It wasn't, yeah, so I wouldn't say it was especially difficult. Good. Uh, so what are some of the challenges your team is working on? Uh, so I guess the main challenge that, that we have is making sure that uh, the plugins that our customers get, get to market as quick as possible. Uh, it doesn't do much good to have a great product if our, you know, plugins are, are behind. So we can really accelerate that doing the automation that my team does. Uh, we can put the data in front of our researchers quicker so that they can get the plugins out the door and into our customers' hands in, into the environments where they need to check. Yeah, that, that really ties into some of the stuff we talk about with Satnam of, you know, we've got that team looking at the almost more qualitative side of things. They're looking at those advisories, helping people understand what's in Patch Tuesday, what, what is the kind of key takeaway from this advisory from Cisco or whatever vendor. And then you're kind of on the opposite side of that, helping automate any processes that we can to feed information to the plugins and get those moving. So customers have the knowledge and then the functionality they need. Right, exactly. And in fact, Satnam often tips us off that, you know, new advisories are out and then we can go and kick off our automation instead of just waiting for it to, to go. Cause it, it runs by itself every few hours, but we can kick it off manually if Satnam's like, hey, it's time, go. <laughs> hey, we, we heard that there's a terrible thing happening. You should probably look into it. <laughs> yep. Cool. Um, so are there any examples you can give of some of those inconsistent formats or you know, vendors changing their format from month to month? Sure, so it's, so it's no particular vendor. Uh, it's, it's more the concept of if you, you know, you're reading a website, uh, our, our code goes out and scrapes the same website that you know, we read as humans. And if you know, the date changes format or something, it's, it's fine to our human eyes, but it throws machines for a loop. Uh, so we've got some pretty extensive testing and logic in the background that you know, can manipulate that data in order to, to make it fit into the, into the you know, round hole that it needs to fit into. Um, I mean, what we love is when vendors do cool things like uh, give us JSON feeds or XML or something that's you know machine readable and we can process that super quickly. Uh, that makes my guys really happy. Uh, what are some vendors but, that do that? Uh, well, actually, Palo Alto just switched over to one. Uh, was it a week ago? I think or a week and a half ago. Uh, so we were pretty happy when that happened. Uh, I mean, I guess everyone shouldn't do it because then it puts us out of a job. But you know. <laughs> 
I'm like, okay, a couple of the vendors can do it, but yeah. a handful of yeah. you hold back so that we can keep working. Let's keep this interesting. My guys love a good challenge. Right. And and it's the sort of thing that we don't think of, of you know, hey, maybe the person who writes documentation at the vendor you know, got a different role and they brought someone new in and they write their dates differently. And we even run into right. that here of, you know, we've yep. got people in Europe who write dates in the European format and we use the particular format here. And for humans, like you said, we can process that yeah. fairly easily. Sometimes it takes a minute, <laughs> um, but- With the dates it does, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're like, okay, which one? Well, they're only 12 months. So Ooh. anything above that, I know what I'm dealing with, right. but anything under 12, it's just complete mystery. We did get one question in advance um, that it looks like David's already answered, but I will ask it uh, for the general public. It was um, a question for you, Ryan, about the amber ale from the print behind you. It's it's Odell Brewery in uh, Fort Collins, Colorado. All right. So I grew up in Denver, so you know, I've got these brewery posters all over my house yeah <laughs> all right so with that we can open it up to some some technical questions for satnam or ryan go ahead and throw those into the q a panel all right so barring anything in the last minute or so while i go through some of our plugs we'll go ahead and close it out so with that i do want to remind folks that there are several places where you can keep up with tenable research you can follow a couple of groups on the tenable community there's the research release highlights group which is a little more product focused for um, a little bit of advanced awareness of new features or any changes in particular a lot of audit and compliance information is pasted or is posted there you can also follow the cyber exposure alert group on the community especially if you want to keep track of the zero-day research team's work. You can follow the Tenable Tech blog on Medium. You can also follow us on Twitter at Tenable Security. It's specifically the hashtag Tenable Research. Finally, on February 29th, a few of our researchers will be presenting at B-Sides Tampa. Some more specific information on that with links will be included in the document you get after this recording comes out. Um, but if you're in the Tampa area, be sure to check it out. With that, I would like to thank our panelists and wish everyone a good day. Thank you. Bye.